Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel, and today I'm joined by Mia Mask, the Mary Riepma Ross Professor of Film at Vassar College. She is the author of Divas on Screen, Black Women in American Film, and jointly edited Poitiers Revisited, Reconsidering a Black Icon in the Obama Age. Her newest book is Black Rodeo, A History of the African-American Western, the subject of her Athenaeum talk last night. Her cultural commentary has been featured on national public radio programs Tell Me More, Marketplace, and Morning Edition, on Soledad O'Brien's Matter of Fact, and in documentaries for the Smithsonian Channel, the Criterion Channel, and CNN's The Movies. Professor Mask, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'd first like to start by just asking you a bit about your upbringing. I think um, let's start with if you could describe the neighborhood that you grew up in. Absolutely. So I am from Brooklyn, born and raised, and I grew up in Brooklyn at a time when kids were encouraged to just go outside and play, especially in the, in the summertime. And then your parents would call you in um, around dinner time, and that would be it, or you know, time to do your homework. But it was a really fun time to be a kid in Brooklyn because we really had free reign, and, or to be out on our bicycles or playing handball. I don't know that that's encouraged so much anymore, but um, I did grow up in Brooklyn. I, I'm the youngest of three, and my family was one that really prioritized prioritized education because my grandparents were uh, the administrators at um, high schools in the South. And so education had been a priority and a value in our family for a long time. And and what part of Brooklyn was that as well? Yeah, so this is the Prospect Lefferts Manor neighborhood that I grew up in. So I grew up on Midwood Street, and then we moved just a couple blocks from there when I was about eight years old to Maple Street uh, between Bedford and Flatbush. So that's the Prospect Lefferts Manor neighborhood, not far from Crown Heights, for mm. example. Yeah, I, I just asked because I, I was in Brooklyn over the summer, um, right across from uh, the Barclays Center. Um, and I can imagine it would have Definitely been a great place to grow up. Dallas was not not quite as fun. Um, and so you, you said your your grandparents were administrators in high schools yes. in Texas. Yeah, did, in in uh, North Carolina. In North Carolina. Yeah. Um, how much did they they share about that experience with you, and, and what sort of impact did that have? Oh, that's a lovely question. I wish that I had had the pleasure of knowing my maternal or paternal grandparents. Really, only my maternal grandmother um, was a grandparent that I was acquainted with. But it was, but education was a value in our home. So my grandparents passed before I was born. Um, being the youngest of three, I was you know came later in my parents' life. But um, my grand parents were administrators and uh, my my parents had both fortunately been able to attend college so my father was someone who studied uh, at St. Augustine's College before he went on to do graduate work. And my mother was a student at Fisk University who then went on to do graduate work at University of Chicago in biology. So for us kids, education was always a, a um, priority that our parents expected us to work hard and try to excel in school. Mm. And so I imagine your home then growing up must have been just filled with books and just always reading. 
Yes. Um, I would say they were filled more with um, with science-oriented books, my mother having been in biology and then my father ultimately becoming a physician. And I think for a time I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't really pursue uh, that in the end. I, I went to Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn, which is a large public high school, and then went to Tufts University for undergrad. And at Tufts, I did my undergraduate degree in sociology and took film courses as well. And it was really at that juncture that I began to to pivot away from uh, STEM and away from the sciences and into sociology and women's issues at that time. So I was interested in the representation of, say, women in film. Um, and so that's how I sort of transitioned uh, in college to being interested more in cinema studies than in other fields. And so when did this when did this passion and, and desire to pursue film studies begin? Like um, as a child, was there a specific movie that uh, you and your family would like gather around to watch? Not really. I found film a little bit on my own. I mean, I, we my my family watched some movies that I think all families watch, like It's a Wonderful Life, you know what I mean, in the holidays. And um, I definitely liked like the uh, – uh, comedies that were on on television but no I I don't think we were really a family that sat around and watched that much TV except for maybe uh, shows like the Cosby show right which was you know in the in the 80s late 80s those were really uh, those family sitcoms a different world which is a spin-off of the Cosby show those were really popular so we definitely watched some of those shows but no we we weren't really a big movie watching family I in high school I think started watching movies sort of as my after school or sort of weekend recreational activity. And then again, when I went to, to college, I really thought that I was going to pursue um, veterinary medicine because I wanted to be an equine vet. I love horses and I wanted to work with horses. But at college, I took some courses in sociology and became very interested in the representation of women and people of color in popular culture and in film. I also, in college, I took some courses on Hitchcock, and that really was the turning point. The courses on Hitchcock were so captivating, so um, engaging, and introduced me to psychoanalytic film criticism and feminist film theory, and that really was the turning point for me, and I decided, okay, this is what I want to do more than even being interested in making films, I wanted to read film theory and potentially be a film critic. And so that's when I decided to apply to NYU to graduate school. And what about for um, for your love of horses as well? How, how did that actually spark? Yeah, so that started really through a teacher that I had in school who created an after-school group an after school. Um, and was this in high school? Or? Oh, sorry. This is in grade school. So I had, I, I guess it was maybe a fourth grade teacher or fifth grade teacher who created an after school group where she took some of the of her students to uh, riding, to horseback riding lessons after school at Prospect Park, believe it or not. Judy Melnick, Judy Melnick Brickman. And um, we absolutely loved it. 
And uh, then what I did is I wanted to take riding lessons as often as my parents would allow. And uh, then during the summers, I said, well, could I please go to, to riding camp? And so they found a horseback riding camp for me to go to in Buffalo, New York. And um, after that, I was really sort of bitten by the bug. And it's something you continue today, right? It is. I do ride today, um, and I am a hunter-jumper rider, uh, and I compete and show in the summer when I have more time. Awesome. Um, so moving ahead a bit as well, um, to focus a little more on on films, um, I saw you had curated a collection for um, the Criterion collection, um, which I was like, oh, that's awesome. I, I love Criterion. Um, could you talk a bit about that experience, um, how you decided which films you wanted to, to highlight the most? Absolutely. I have really enjoyed working with Criterion. A lovely curator there, producer there, Elizabeth Pauker, reached out to me initially to begin to curate some films uh, that were Sydney Poitier star vehicles. And they knew that I had worked on the Sydney Poitier anthology as, that you mentioned, Poitier Revisited, Reconsidering a Black Icon in the Obama Age. And they said, well, would you curate say 11 or 12 films for our streaming channel. And I was like, well, if you twist my arm, you know, <laughs> absolutely. So I developed a, a list of films uh, out of his catalog that I thought would give viewers good exposure to his oeuvre or, you know, his catalog of works, if you will. And uh, they were very receptive. They, you know, had to, have, of course, secure the rights for the streaming uh, on their channel. And then I also recorded an introduction to the collection or the selection of films that we chose. And I really enjoyed that because it was an opportunity to reintroduce uh, or to introduce audiences that aren't, were not familiar with Poitier's films to his work. And it was just really uh, rewarding. And it led to me doing additional projects with Criterion. So after the initial Poitier series, they also asked me to record an interview on Swing Time, which is a classical Hollywood musical that stars Fred Astaire. And this was a film that was a bit you know, uh, challenging to talk about because, uh, unfortunately, it's a film in which Fred Astaire performs in blackface. And so they really wanted me to help uh, their audiences contextualize and historicize the situation. So, you know, that was tricky and difficult, but rewarding as well. And I've gotten very good feedback from folks who've seen that um, DVD sort of extra, that interview. Uh, I've also, for Criterion, done uh, an introduction to the Raisin in the Sun, which they've remastered and worked on the Western projects with them. And... So I, I'm curious as well, your thoughts on, um, so this is sort of a two-part question, but um, so the main part is I'm curious about um, black storytelling in movies, um, specifically like in the early, mid 20th century. Um, I mean, you mentioned like white actors using blackface. Um, I'm I'm curious, what, what do you think like movies roles uh, or, or the role of a movie is in um, changing people's perception of, of history and like what is the role of a story that a movie can tell um, as opposed to a different piece of media? Sure. Well, 
I'd like to think that what movies can do is entertain us, enlighten us, and just encourage us to to think differently and to think broadly and to imagine beyond the everyday. So in the early 20th century that you're sort of asking about, African-American storytelling was was really limited because African-Americans were not employed in an equitable and accurate way in the film industry. They were and and the types of roles that black actors got in front of the camera were primarily stereotypical roles. So Donald Bogle's written a wonderful book, Tom's Coons, Mammy's Mulattoes and Bucks, an interpretive history of African Americans in the movies. And this has been a staple book in black film studies for a long, long time. And he talks about the fact that, you know, in the early 20th century, it was basically the Tom, the Coon, the Mammy, the Mulatto, and the Buck, the Black Buck. Those were the stereotypes to which black actors were limited. The only uh, uh, sort of departure from that would have been in African-American produced films, all black cast films, made by folks like Oscar Michaud, George and Noble Johnson, you know, these uh, African-American directors who were mavericks in and of themselves, you know, creating black produced film for African-American audiences. And eventually, with the transition to sound, these films um, showed the Hollywood studios that there was an audience for African-American content. And you began to see a slow, um, you know, sort of trickle, uh, 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 trickled into um, the main film industry of more African-American actors. Still being used, however, in um, into sort of more minor character parts. But in the earliest days of cinema, they were expected to wear blackface themselves. So at least once you have the beginning of the transition to sound and 1930s cinema, blackface is waning, is falling out of favor, and you have... Um, at least African-Americans playing themselves as opposed to whites in blackface. Then it's not until the 40s and 50s that you begin to have social problem pictures that, that address issues of equity and equality and access to opportunity. Melodramas like Imitation of Life, right? both the 1934 version directed by uh, uh, Joseph Stahl, or the 1959 iteration of that film directed by Douglas Sirk. And so it's really from the late 30s through the 50s that you have a whole range of social problem pictures, Home of the Brave, Pinky, um, you know, that are raising these questions all the way through to including Sidney Poitier's uh, debut in No Way Out, which is a film about an African-American doctor who is assigned to treat a bigoted white patient and uh, the struggles that that entails. So I think that film can open people's minds, push people to, to challenge themselves, their biases, their expectations. And we've seen social problem pictures play a role in that journey. And so what do you think Hollywood is, is doing today then to address these these continued like racial stereotypes um and do you think like hollywood's um actions have been enough in recent years 
in, su- in supporting like um, people of color in acting, directing, producing? Yeah. So when we talk about Hollywood, you know, we have to be as specific as we can. It's really hard. I think sometimes it's easy to, to talk about it in, in very general terms. But the the American film industry and, and Hollywood studios in particular do what's profitable, first, last, and always. And if they find it profitable to make content that features African-American actors and stories, they'll do so. In, but if they, if they think for even a, a nanosecond that it won't be profitable, they're not inclined to do so. So there's not a, that much social conscience moving their, um, their activity as much as it is profitability. And uh, I think what we've seen for many years is, is the recognition, at least since the 1970s, that African-American films do find their audience if they are um, made well, marketed, and given an opportunity. So when I say since the 1970s, you know, black exploitation or what's also called black action cinema really demonstrated its profitability. And, and it's been since that time that, that, that the studios have on and off again dipped into, jet, you know, utilized African-American storytelling um, in, in ways that they found profitable at various junctures. So we see today that um, that's what, does, what continues to motivate. So let's look at the... Uh, a Black Panther film franchise, for example. They produced this film with the expectation that like other graphic novel, comic book, superhero films, it would tap into that audience and uh, the audience for those kinds of films and make money. So I, I think that what Hollywood does is look for profitability first and uh, try to maximize their um return on investment. I would like to say that they are more socially conscious in in their storytelling, but I think we're seeing more of that in television than in in the film industry. There's a wonderful report that your listeners could take a look at. It's a a report out of the Annenberg School of Communication titled Inequality in 1,300 Popular Films. It's online, it's free, it's available. You can Google it and take a look at it. And it shows you exactly where the film industry, the American film industry, specifically Hollywood studios are with respect to representation of women, people of color, LGBTQ folk, and uh, folks with disability. I, I'm interested as well in learning a bit more about your research experience, I think generally, but also tied to um, your most recent book. Um, and I think my first question is just going to be, was there anything that really surprised you um, during your research? I know um, you mentioned last night at at the Ath Talk, finding that one film, um, Black Rodeo, in um, the Library of Congress. Yeah. I mean, it being the only copy. Yeah. Um, were there other, I mean, maybe smaller things as well that did surprise you yes. when doing your research? Absolutely. I love the question. Thank you, Nathaniel. I was so surprised to learn about Lobo. Do you know who Lobo is? I don't think I do. Okay. Well, that's great. See, um, I'm just excited to to share with everyone, and it's in the book, um, the existence of Lobo. Lobo is the name of the first African-American 
uh, comic book hero to have his own series. We all thought it was a Black Panther who emerged in 1966, but Lobo emerged in 1965. Sadly, he only had two complete uh, series or two complete comic books dedicated to him, but this is a Western hero, Western uh, character who uh, is um, a... uh, how, how should I describe him? He's a cowboy and lone rider, lone hero who uh, rides his horse. I think his name is Midnight. And um, I don't want to ruin for your listeners uh, how Lobo came into being, but you can definitely Google him and 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 look that story up. But I was so delighted to find that there before. You know, before the Black Panther, there was an African-American comic book hero. Now, sadly, uh, he was canceled after the second um, comic book was issued because the there were uh, folks who did not like seeing an an African-American comic book character carrying a gun, being a gun-toting character. But Lobo is a a lone hero who has inherited a lot of money. And I won't, you know, spoiler alert, I won't sort of say how he's come into his money. And he defends justice and um, uh, does acts of kindness and fairness um, and leaves a, a... a coin with uh, his moniker on on the victims' um, foreheads, or you know, for them to find at some later date. So check out Lobo. I was excited to learn about him. I had no idea that he existed, and it just goes to show you that there was that, that folks were creating African American comic book uh, characters uh, before Black Panther. Awesome. Yeah, that that actually does sound really cool. I'll yeah. have to check it out. Um, so uh, another question as well, um, I guess that was my only one really specific to to research. Um, but so this is, this is kind of like, um, um, a little like brain exercise one. Um, what movie or movies do you think are missing from, um, from the African-American Western space? Um, or just in general, um, what movie do you think you would create? if you were given the opportunity? Sure, it's a lovely question because the question uh, also opens up this uh, the set of issues around the Western. So last night at the talk, someone was saying, you know, the Western is a genre that is so entrenched in in colonialism and in the displacement of Native peoples, you know, is, you know, how does one reconcile that with say, African-American history and issues. So, you know, I I want to encourage people to think outside the box and to recognize that though the iconography of the Western genre has sort of been colonized and our minds have been colonized to think about the Western in very conventional ways, that cowboys are white men or or that these stories exclude women and people of color um, and dehumanize Native Americans that that is not the actual history of the West. First of all, that's the mythologization of the West in mainstream popular culture. But even that mythologization has been distorted. So the opportunity is there for 
for young people, for your generation to now come along, your generation of, of screenwriters and um, filmmakers and curators to re to in the in light of new histories, uncovered histories, uncovered stories, now reimagine that mythology. So when you ask the question, what stories you know could be there or, or don't exist, I think that the field is wide open. I think it's a very exciting time for writers, uh, women writers in particular, writers of color, to and and folks with an intersectional lens as people of color, as women of color, um, to uh, rethink, reimagine, and begin to tell stories uh, about communities in the West and and or and uh, um, settlements in the West that came into being that we've yet to see in film and popular culture. So I think when, I, when you ask what stories are not there, what stories could be told, there's a range of them. The field is open. I think that's a great answer as well because um, being here in Claremont, we're um, relatively close to LA. It's still, I mean, with traffic, it, it can be like an hour and a half. Um, but we're so close to Hollywood and so close to so many like major and minor film studios. Um, and I mean, I, I even know a lot of people here who do have an interest in like screenwriting, filmmaking, all of that. Um, so we have enough time for just one more question. Um, for all of our listeners, what movie would you recommend everyone watch at least once? Oh, my goodness. Well, Which there, is, there it, are a it, whole a bunch. There, no, it's a wonderful question. Um, I think everyone should watch Citizen Kane. And I'd like Citizen Kane because it's a film that sort of comes right in the middle of my syllabus on world cinema, introduction to world cinema. It's, this is a film directed by Orson Welles. It was his directorial debut. It's a masterpiece in terms of the cinematography by Greg Toland. It's brilliant in terms of the modernist fragmented storytelling and narration in terms of its use of film within a film. Uh, it's flashback narrative structure, right? This sort of his sort of this sort of way in which we're trying to learn about uh, Charles Foster Kane through a series of, of flashbacks, and uh, it's it's a, a a film that asks us to think about the relativity of truth, right? And and how we come to know uh, people. So that's a film that's quite nuanced and layered, and I would encourage everyone to see. And I think Citizen Kane as well was, um, I think it's often lauded as being like very groundbreaking for cinema in general yes. as well, because of so many techniques yes. that, it, that it used. Um, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Um, Professor Mask, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation to have with you. Thanks. Um, it's been great to be here. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>